Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello, what lover of American literature doesn't remember these haunting lines? Tell about the Midwest, what it's like there, what they do there. Why do they live there? Why do they live at all? Of course, that was, as some of you hopefully recognized, a deliberate mangling of a famous passage from William Faulkner's Absalom Absalom, which, speaking from personal experience, can still make a historian of the American South feel a little weak in the knees. It's more than a little disconcerting, as I also hope you noticed, to substitute Midwest for the South. The South is haunted and mysterious and interesting. The Midwest... But the charge that Shreve McCannon laid upon Quentin Compson can be laid upon any historian of any place in any era, even the Midwest, as John Locke would certainly agree. He's the author of The Good Country, A History of the American Midwest, 1800 to 1900. And the last time he was on the podcast was way back in episode 13, when we talked about his manifesto, The Lost Region Toward a Revival of Midwestern History. John Locke, welcome back. Thanks, Al. Glad to be back with you. I'm, I'm happy to have been there at the creation and. Oh well, I and I feel like I was at the, well, I wasn't at the bar in 2013, but it was not long. I, you know, you were there. You wrote that manifesto, and now this is the this is the child that followed the. I don't know if that was the conception or whatever, but it's, you know, was that seven eh, nine years? Not bad for academic gestation. Well, we uh, we need some sort of book about Midwest so we can organize our thoughts and have debates and conversations about what is the nature of this history. So we, um, we need to begin with some first principles. You have right in the opening, well, the right behind the, the, the frontispiece, we have a map. Now, my mother is from Iowa, and she has often expressed some concern that people regard Ohio as part of the Midwest. Mm. Uh, my mother, as I say to her, she has a very, a very austere view of Midwestern boundaries. Uh, I think mostly the Midwest is basically Ohio- Iowa, as far as she's concerned. <laughs> but what, how should we define the Midwest? And what difference does that make? That's funny. A couple of years ago, I was at a uh, performance of by Garrison Keillor. This is before the big incident uh, took him out of the picture. We were chatting by stage, and uh, we were talking about this book, and his first question was, is Ohio in the Midwest? And he's thinking about it. But um, luckily for your mother and Garrison Keillor, my friend of mine working on a book about where does the East end and where does the Midwest begin? And it is kind of an odd divide there because you have the Appalachian Mountains and you have the southern tier of Ohio that's very much connected to Appalachia, uh, I would say. That's within that orbit. And places like Youngstown, I mean, that feels kind of like Pittsburgh and western Pennsylvania, et cetera. So it's not a stark, dramatic line. But once you get uh, about two-thirds into or about halfway into Ohio, let's say, definitely by Columbus. That's definitely Midwest. I don't think there's any question about it. 
but th these lines don't follow state lines. And uh, I know that very well because I'm in South Dakota and I'm in Eastern South Dakota. Uh, your mom would be happy about two miles behind me to the East is Iowa. And about five miles that way would be Minnesota. So I'm definitely within the Midwestern orbit. But once we get out farther west, about to the Missouri River or roughly the 100th Meridian, that changes into the Plains West. And it becomes different country, uh, different territory for a lot of reasons we don't need to go into. But so I've been thinking about this. What are these boundaries? And, uh, you know, the and actually in the spring, uh, myself and Gleaves Whitney have a book coming out about the northern reaches of the Midwest. But. The big enchilada that we're going to tackle at some point, and you're going to love this, Al, you should be part of this project, is this dividing line between the Midwest and the South. And, you know, we can roughly approximate it as the Ohio River. But again, those southern counties in these Midwestern states, say Cairo, Illinois, for example, there's a lot of southern influences there. So I'm not making a claim for very stark boundaries of the Midwest, but Generally speaking, the traditional 12 states with parts of them shaved off, maybe like the Western Dakota, Southern Missouri, maybe slightly Southeastern Ohio, but it uh, just takes a little while. Uh, yeah. Uh, one thing that I realized reading your book is that some things do follow state boundaries. This brings us, I'll link in the show notes back to a conversation with Brent Tarter, one of the preeminent historians of Virginia, and Brent insists that you can study a state, you can study Virginia, because there has been a constitutional order of some kind in this place called Virginia since, if you want to be really persnickety about it, certainly since 1619. And it's followed on uh, since the formation of the assembly, and it's been that has been modified at various points, but there's been a constitutional order in this one place for this time. And the Midwest begins as a constitutional project uh, of called the Northwest Ordinance. And um, it's stupid. I mean, it's just not my field. So I hadn't thought about how much of politics way into the late 19th century revolves around conditions set by the Northwest Ordinance. Yeah, we, I mean, you can make the argument the Northwest Ordinance is basically the founding charter of the Midwest or the founding constitution for this region. Um, people forget about this, but during that famous year of 1787, of course, they were working in Philadelphia, not too far from you, on the Constitution, famously. But the Continental Congress was still working up in New York and trying to put framework for this new territory just acquired from Britain in the Revolution, um, which they called the Northwest Territory because it was north of the Ohio River and west of the original colonies. And a lot of the ideals of the American Revolution were poured into that Northwest Ordinance um, in a way that idealism uh, failed down in Philadelphia when they were writing the Constitution, because, of course, they allowed slavery and the two-thirds clause and all these things just to make compromises with the American South to make them happy. But the Northwest Ordinance becomes a different thing. 
and those ideals can go right to work in the Midwest. They can guarantee uh, open uh, worship of whatever denomination you happen to follow, free speech and uh, basic uh, rights, uh, rights to jury trials. But most importantly, I think, and time we now realize this, the most important step they took was abolishing slavery in the Northwest Territory and therefore shaping the entire development of this region and making it highly distinct from the South. And also shaping, and we'll get to this in a second, uh, it's extraordinary how many of the Midwestern constitutional conventions end up being fights over slavery. Uh, the, the and then over black codes, over the control of blacks within Midwestern states. Uh, I, you know, that's not just, it's not just us looking back at them and projecting that. You can see this is at the heart of arguments over the constitutional order, because it's an argument, as, as several people have suggested, when you talk about whether black men can vote, you're having a conversation about citizenship even before other you're talking you're having one of the earliest conversations about what it means to be an American citizen. Right. You know, one of the strangest things I ran across when working on this uh, book, Al, was the early constitutional convention for Ohio. And, you know, Ohio gets a little bit more attention because that's essentially the first state of the Midwest and things kind of progress, you know, toward the West from there. A lot of Ohioans move into it. And there's a little chain migration. So Ohio has outsized influence here. But what what I found very surprising was the robust debate at the Ohio Constitutional Convention about extending the right to vote to African-Americans. And in fact, at first, the vote was to extend suffrage to African-Americans. And it was a close vote. And then there were arguments about other things. And then before the uh, final document was adopted, it was pulled out. And I think it was pulled out because, you know, they wanted to get popular support for it and they didn't want this to, you know, be a distraction from other things they were trying to do. But it, what I thought was, thought was super interesting was this was an open debate from the beginning about first principles. And then, of course, unfortunately, the, the black codes come, uh, statutory black codes, and they put certain restrictions on African-Americans in the uh, Midwest, such as uh, testifying in court. And, you, you know, they needed to have bonds from certain people who would sign a piece of paper saying, if they incur any expenses, I'll cover those costs. But we also need to keep in mind the long-term trajectory of these laws. Ohio repeals these laws in the 1840s, and they start. Um, creating African-American schools and some integrated schools and passing civil rights. Let's get back. To, let's get back to that in a little bit. I, I, I want to talk about first of where Midwesterners came from, uh, because in, in, in the 1790s, which when I think about this, um, when it's called the West, when Washington is thinking about the West and, uh, and Jefferson, they're thinking about the West, they're referring to what we would now think of as the near Midwest, the old Northwest, the old West, the old Northwest. Um, high Federalists in New England, very suspicious of this. Um, and of course, the first region which contemplates, which people fear its separation, is the Midwest. 
that at Washington's passion for Potomac Canal and the eventual creation of the Erie Canal is the fear that you know the, the purchase, Louisiana Purchase comes about because otherwise, without it, that will become a separatist region. You know, related to that, certainly on high federalist part, people austere federalists in New England is a distrust of the kind of people that would move into the West. Um, who are they? Where are they from? They can't be up to any good. So who are they? And what, what are at first? Where are they coming from to go into the Midwest? Yeah, well, this uh, this idea of a generic West that you're talking about here is very important, and ultimately, this generic West begins to diverge into different camps. Of course, the South and the Midwest, basically along the Ohio River, becoming different places. So, the Tocqueville starts to write down all these differences he's seeing between Ohio and Kentucky. And so the West begins to split into different camps. So this is part of that story too. I talk about this in a chapter about the growth of regional identity. But back to your, um, back to your question about who are these people? Well, the thing that makes the Midwest very distinct is a great mix of people. So you have some upland Southerners moving in from the Southern area. You have Pennsylvania Germans and Quakers coming in horizontally. Uh, you have the Erie Canal bringing in lots of New Englanders and Yankees, et cetera. And then very soon you have a big overlay of actual immigrants from overseas, mostly Germans and Irish in the 1840s. But later on, you get a big wave of Scandinavians, for example, and then a little bit later, some people from Eastern Europe, um, you know, Polish people, et cetera, who, who end up in cities like Chicago. So the point or what's important about that is you have a big mix of people. So no one group can kind of dominate the region. And I think that makes the Midwest more pluralist, pluralistic and small D democratic, unlike your Virginia, Al, which is kind of run by you know, the Anglican establishment or New England, which is, you know, run by the Puritans. Right, the, con the Congregational slash Unitarian establishment by the 1830s. Um, and, and so you've got this, this great intermingling of, of cultures. You've also, I mean, and you have a, some interesting sections on the natives. I mean, there is, there is as there is a, a dispossession uh, of the Cherokee more and, and Choctaw and Chickasaw in the South, there's also the Potawatomi and the Shawnee and so on are also go on their own sort of northern trail of tears. But also reading between the lines, you can see that many more natives probably stayed in the Midwest than whites wanted to acknowledge at the time or that we might realize. So there's it is a it is quite an intermingling. Yeah, and I I start my book about 1800, uh, and I did that because. Um, you know, prior to that, you know, there's not much settlement in the region and it's pretty um, highly, you know, highly localized. This is before Ohio gets organized, et cetera. But there's a very, very interesting history, prehistory there. Uh, and this, you know, Pontiac's Rebellion and the French and Indian War and wars in the 1790s that were, went really poorly for Americans. There's an amazing history that beginning with Richard White and all these other historians who have worked on that. And I really encourage people to 
little down story if they want to know this beginning stage better. But I, I would say that there has been a tremendous amount of work done on that. But what comes next? Not much work on that. I mean, the wars are over. And once it's sort of established, you know, who's going to control, the Americans will control the territory. Well, what kind of society do they build? That's the question we want to take. Yeah, it's funny because your book is aimed at a question I've, I was saying uh, to Jamie Bellick, who was on the show recently, a professor of, uh, Regis professor of umpty umpty ump at <laughs> University of Oxford, talking about, you know, worldwide expansion of this and that. He's a historian, of, he's a Kiwi historian of New Zealand before he came to, back to Oxford. But we were talking about small places in New Zealand and small places in uh, America offline. And I was like, Dayton, Ohio, how did that happen? You know, uh, St. Clair is the battle, I think, the, of the, the Maumee, uh, St. Clair's defeat of the, um, of the Wabash or the Maumee, I should know this, but it's the worst per capita American military defeat in history. Yep. And then 100 years after that, Dayton has the highest number of patents per capita in America. Yeah. No, you know, how, what, so what, you know, it's like, what happened? There's what's, what's the miss What's the middle part of that equation? Um, and so your book is really an answering to that in, in many ways. Um, we could, we could start the book with the Wright brothers and say, you know, how do the, do the right, the Wright brothers don't just happen. And to that end, um, well, before we get to that, we should talk that, but all these people are creating this, uh, as you say, an experiment in radical democratic republicanism. Um, what what is that? How how what? What are some examples of their their radical democracy, radical democratic republicanism? That sort of that sort of um, growing from. There's not one group that it's not just the Quakers who are in favor of it. It's not just the Scots Irish. It's not just the old Germans or then the new German immigrants. It's everyone's participating and pushing this forward. Yeah, well, think about your state there, Virginia, and think about the uh, continuing aristocratic claims or the aristocratic structures that continue even after the revolution. Oh, my, my goodness, John, John. In 1901, they actually took the right away from whites. Not just the, what, what was a Jim Crow law in other uh, states was also deprived not just black men of the vote, but white men of the vote. That's how high, that's how hierarchical Virginia remained into the through the 20th century. Right. Well, and these people that ended up in Ohio and Indiana and they they saw them breaking that continuing aristocratic tradition and actually practicing small d democracy and spreading the suffrage as wide as possible as quickly as possible. There's been some great studies of early Ohio that, you know, basically everyone could vote and voting rates were extremely high, like 80% in those early races in Ohio. Uh, that made the place different. And, you know, the people that lived there, especially the immigrants, recognized this right away. And so if you study their writings and what they're commenting on, and Tocqueville is a good example of this, saying, you know, the mayor of this town is the guy who runs the tavern and the mayor of the next town over is just a regular farmer. And, you know, people are commenting on it. Now, I think when we first see these quotes in 2022, we're like, oh, yeah, that's obvious. But back then, given where they were coming from, either Europe or, you know, coastal Virginia or something, it was a very different place. 
Right. So, I mean, the voting requirement in Virginia, actually you mentioned this at one point, um, is like 25 acres. Or, and uh, even in the Virginia Constitution Convention of 1830, people are uh, asking, me the mechanics of Richmond are asking for the right to vote, which is denied mm -hmm. uh, by the Constitutional Convention. Uh, there's a very, in both South Carolina to some extent, a little bit less, but in a lot of the places, there's a, Massachusetts too, I believe, there's a coastal disproportionate influence on who has uh, a vote. Uh, there's votes from the counties along the coast matter more and in ohio and then indiana and illinois all that's turned on its head yeah you know historically thinking podcasts so i think this is a good point to be made here is that i was trying to think um as a historian of ways to convey this to a broader audience how distinct this order was and uh, one time when I was grappling with this, uh, I was in an old bookstore in Watertown, South Dakota, and I ran across a history of Russia um, that I thought was perfect because I was ice fishing. It was a history of old dark. So I was reading through it, and I, and I started to think, you know, I had a section to the beginning of this book about a comparative section, just trying to get across to people why this place is so unique. This is one of the most powerful things a historian can do is make histor uh, comparative arguments. It's also one of the most difficult because not only do you have to be an expert on the Midwest, you get to be an expert on the Russia and wherever else so you can make these comparative points. But long story short, I tried to look at a lot of places in the world and even other parts of the United States to bring home to people how unique this place was, and to back up my claim that I think this was the most small-D democratic place in the world at the time, I can't find a place that was uh, more open and democratic, at least. So there are lots of other aspects of its society and culture than its politics. And in some ways, uh, this is the creation of the civil society, which nurtures the politics. So let's... let's you, you gallop through these in one chapter and it's fascinating level of details. Uh, basically, from early on, the Midwest is a book culture. Yeah. It, it's a reading culture. Absolutely, it is. And, you know, prior to books, we should pr probably say it was a region that put a high um, premium on education and learning and making sure people could read and write. Uh, the levels of literacy are off the charts, um, you know, into the 90s, 90 uh, percent. And so people could read books. Uh, they could read magazines. They could read newspapers, huge numbers of newspapers. But it went beyond that. It was kind of a it was kind of part of the social life. Others would come through. There would be lyceums and Chautauqua and an amazing lecture circuit. Um, you know, this was in addition to um, church, in addition to going to your Christian church on Sunday morning and hearing a, um, a sermon from an educated preacher, um, that was, you know, the world, that was the water people swam in. And the, uh, what, what about the movement towards public education? That start that does that start as early as possible in in the Midwest? It does, and uh, our early requirements for the building of schools and 
and um, went beyond that to a very robust um, early Ohio. Fascinated by this when I ran across some of these, you know, a lot of these religious denominations quickly formed denominational. Uh, there were 20 colleges in Ohio, um, uh-huh. 1940s or so, which was not true in other eastern states. You know, there was one or two colleges. There's four. There's four in Massachusetts, as you point out, yeah. and twenty and twenty in Ohio. There are between 1803 and 1850. You write the state chartered 170 denominational seminaries and high schools. Uh, you know these are, and there is no official high school ed- movement really until 1900, and it's not mandatory until 1920. Yet there are already 170 for for, for people uh, in in Ohio. Yeah. No, it's very impressive what they pulled off. And, uh, I mean, that by itself would be very impressive. Immediately, colleges start pushing to allow African-Americans to attend and women to attend. And basically, college co-education begins in the Midwest because they allow so many of these institutions open to women. And by the end of the century, you start to get you know, dozens and dozens of uh, uh, women who become doctors and lawyers and stuff. I mean, again, I don't think we know the history, Al. What's always in, it intrigued me is um, this is what I'm gonna, uh, I'll refer to as a moralizing culture, which now sounds bad, um, but it certainly is, um, is very intentional on their part. Um, Maybe someone's done, you, you, you'll probably be able to immediately answer this. Maybe someone's done something on this, but it's intriguing to me how many uh, Midwestern colleges are also part of utopian town experiments or would be utopian town experiments. Uh, Flander Chase opens Kenyon. He's an Episcopalian bishop. Uh, he then goes to create Jubilee College, which you should visit if you haven't. It's this like weird Oxford quadrangle that never quite got it never got the money to be finished. It's in a state park that's a little west of um, of Peoria, Illinois. Um, and there was supposed to be a utopian community, Jubilee, around Illinois. Uh, Knox College in Gales, Galesburg, Illinois, was by, a, uh, uh, I think, a teacher of Charles Finney, who was a little miffed that Finney uh, had gone and founded Oberlin, which is also a utopian community. Oberlin, Ohio. Is a, so he went to found Knox College, Galesburg, Illinois, another utopian community. And these are places, you know, Oberlin, it's hilarious to read about Oberlin in the early days. I and mean, they, they adopt uh, the Reverend Sylvester Graham's diet. Uh, they expel one professor. Uh, they uh, fire him for using pepper in the dining hall. Uh uh, there, there are. This is this is part of the utopian creation of these ideal communities. These colleges are not just to uh, educate; they're to mold the young men and women uh, who are there. But then also they're to mold their surrounding community as well somehow. So there's always this moralizing utopian influence in, I would imagine, probably the majority of these colleges. Yeah, it's funny. I ran across a stat. I hope I'm remembering. Right, that there were 110 utopian communities formed in the Midwest because the conditions were perfect. On the other hand, there were, I think, two formed in the American South because the conditions weren't good for that sort of thing. <laughs> you mentioned uh, Oberlin. There was a book that came out a couple of years ago. I forget the authors, but 
it was some it was titled something like the college that triggered the civil war or something like that but the point there this was a hotbed of abolitionism and they would train preachers to go out and preach more abolitionism and set up uh abolition societies and church abolitionist cause and be part of the underground railroad and that was another thing we need to say about these colleges besides co-education for women besides being coming integrated early on they were very much the tip of the spear in terms of abolitionism in the midwest and anti-slavery societies and organizing places in the midwest to you know fight for the union cause during yeah and there's a great uh, children's book, which I'll, I'll try to find and put in the show notes, uh, of uh, the day the slave catchers came to Oberlin, Ohio, and uh, try and basically white and black, uh, whites and blacks got out their guns. And there's a very famous photograph, actually, of, of, of them all afterward, you know, posing with their weapons mm-hmm. um, and after their defense of Oberlin against some, some southern slave catchers. So this is, is this a, a, an exclusionary culture? Well, I mean, I would. I mean, all cultures. I mean, the thing is, I, this is a trick question because all cultures, to be cultures, exclude things, yeah. as well as include things. So, you know, what are they excluding? Well, I mean, I, to your point, I think in relative terms, it's not that exclusionary compared to other in the world at the time. But there was, I think, a. I don't know if domination is the right word, but the controlling forces of the culture were uh, Protestant um, mores and middle-class mores, agrarian uh, mores. So where does that leave Catholics, for example? Well, Catholics started to come in in the 1840s and 1850s, uh, both in the form of Germans and Irish. And I'm not saying they had it easy uh, there was this kind of old-fashioned anti-Catholicism that existed in lots of places in the United States, but they also did quite well. Uh, the Germans prospered. The Irish ended up getting elected mayors of all these big cities in the Midwest. Uh, they built their own uh, school system, a uh, little, little bit of harassment at times. They built their own college system. I mean, overall... Other smaller groups, uh, Jewish Americans, which really didn't begin immigrating in there uh, to a great extent until the end of the 19th century. Uh, the journal Middle West Review has a very interesting uh, special issue last spring about um, the Jewish Midwest, uh, which to the story if you want to check that out. Um, but I think a lot of uh, Jewish immigrants did thrive in the Midwest, and this kind of comes home in some of those articles. Um, and yeah, and it's it's uh, it's certainly interesting that the conservative Judaism movement begins in Cleveland, Ohio, of all places. Yeah, and there's a big Jewish community in Cincinnati too, and, and that's 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 partly to do with Germanness uh, of 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 Jewish immigrants. I mean, you point out that fifty percent of all. German immigrants, we don't think of it this way, 50% of, of Germans in the Midwest are Catholic. Yeah. Um, and they're clustering, in, and they do cluster in cities uh, because, well, Protestant, Protestant countryside is not as welcoming. Yeah. 
but uh, but Cincinnati, I just visited for, um, over Thanksgiving, and it's amazing how German Catholic Cincinnati and Coving and even Coving the area is. Um, you know. There's still a lot of German Catholic farmers and stuff, though. Big Stearns County, Minnesota is a kind of mm-hmm. end of that, and there are parts in the Dakotas too, and I. But my my overall point, Al, is uh, things weren't perfect. The title of this book isn't the perfect country; it's the good country. Overall, when you put everything in perspective, and you consider the other places in the world and all the injustice and oppression there, this worked pretty well. So let's talk briefly about forming a regional identity. Um, you've already alluded to this, but in many ways, the Midwest quickly begins to define itself as the not South. That's sort of the first stage. I mean, first of all, it's not the East. That that's clear. But then the yeah. second the second phase yeah. is it's not the South. And there's a really um, extraordinary stat that you give, and I, now I won't be able to find it. But it's um, it's how quickly. Oh yeah, here it is. In 1850. The Midwest sent the bulk of its corn down the Ohio River to the south and sent quadruple the amount of pork to the south it did as it did to the east. That's in 1850. By 1860, after expanding Midwestern and Eastern railroads became integrated, the Midwest was sending quadruple the amount of corn to the east that it sent to the south and six times the amount of pork. So, you know, we've got the early Midwest, the early West, Washington's vision of the West is connected to the rivers. And even, it's interesting, that shows that as big as the Erie Canal was for New York City, it could create New York City, but it could not create a separate, it could not do it all by itself. It's the railroads mm-hmm. that change things. Um, and then between yeah. that, that, that amazing change between 1850 and 1860. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, that is extremely important. I mean, this early on, a lot of these settlements were along the Ohio River, and a lot of their goods would go down to to New Orleans. But with the becoming of modern transportation and stuff, that, that nexus is severed rather dramatically. But in addition to that, uh, the tensions between the sections were ramping up dramatically in the 1840s and 1850s. Because of this lingering battle over slavery, um, these territories to the west, they were always fighting about would they be southern oriented or northern oriented. And you get battles over um, the Nebraska Bill, et cetera. I mean, the Nebraska Bill is extremely important for the Midwest because as soon as it passes, it's seen as this great betrayal of Midwestern principles of not allowing slavery to spread. So in the Midwest, in little towns in Michigan, Iowa, Wisconsin, this new anti-Nebraska bill party begins and it becomes the Republican Party. And the reason it starts is to oppose the Nebraska legislation. This movement spreads them like wildfire, and within six years, that party elects a president of the United States. I want to violate the order of your book and talk a little bit about race in the Midwest, because as I've been alluding to even earlier, it's sort of important to even the creation of the constitutional order. So just because the Northwest Ordinance had said there would be no slavery in this territory didn't mean that there wasn't slavery in the territory. 
Um, you point out uh, what people forget is that the French uh, along the Mississippi and Ohio, the couple thousand, ten, there are a few thousand French settlers, half of whom were enslaved. St. Louis, Kaskaskia, Vincennes in Indiana, along the, the tributaries. And those are grandfathered in to the settlement. But that creates a problem, especially when you've got people coming up from the South who might not like the hierarchical political structures that they're leaving, that they're leaving, but they might also want to bring unfree labor with them. And that creates a problem immediately. We've talked about this in Ohio. The, the famous example is always in Illinois, but this happens in Indiana too, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to remember when the United States acquires the um, territory that becomes the Midwest, a lot of that had been part of New France. And the southern region of New France in the Illinois territory uh, had French settlers there who held slaves. And so when the trans when the territory ends, you know, something has to happen to these slaves. Now, when the Americans are in charge, some of these French people are like, well, they have banned slavery in the Northwest Ordinance, so we're leaving. So they would go over and moving into Spanish territory or some slave-friendly territory, maybe into the South. But a number of them stayed, and to St. Clair, the first governor of, of uh the Northwest Territory had to make a decision like, well, well, what do I do with this? Do I just grandfather these people in? Do I declare them immediately free? Do I expel them? And he made the decision that I will grandfather these slaves in, but any people born to these slaves in this territory are going to be free. And so there was that to contend with. There was a similar situation in Detroit. Um, there was also a, I think, a 10-year carve-out in southern Illinois uh, based on the salt works at Shawneetown and a few things like that. But overall, the direction was in the, in the um, they were moving to get rid of slavery. And, you know, it, there were some fits and starts. There was a battle in early Illinois about allowing was a there was a governor who was from Virginia, actually. Edward Coles, very, yeah. fa very famous yeah, in Virginia. And he fought a, a great battle to main, maintain an abolition of slavery in early Illinois, which, again, set the pattern for the region, created this abolitionist and anti-slavery movement in the Midwest that spread to other parts of the region. Um, and, you know, so slowly this was undermined this was undermined in the but again this was mostly in southern indiana and southern illinois the more northern reaches of the midwest say wisconsin minnesota etc this you know this really wasn't a major factor i mean it had to do with the south and those other states yeah well i mean you're gonna see that uh, sort of copperhead support in indiana and illinois um, people firing on recruitment parties in Illinois. I mean, these are all these are all things that happen in southern counties. It doesn't mean that they're uh, they don't turn out to support, say, Morgan's raid into Indiana and Ohio. 
that's never that's, there's never sufficient support for the slavery cause in in the Midwest for that sort of thing, but they are hostile to um, they are hostile towards the Union to some degree in southern in Illinois, in Indiana, and parts of Ohio. Nevertheless, for lots of Midwesterners, and you make this point very clear, you can see that long prior to the formation of the Republican Party, there's an idea is we might not be in favor of black men voting, but we're not for the spread of slavery. Uh, so the Midwest thinks of itself long before the Kansas-Nebraska Act as being uh, having uh, being against the spread of slavery, and that certainly is an ideology that takes it that that goes into it into the they go into the Civil War with. Yeah, another thing that I found very interesting were these states passing um, personal liberty laws, uh, which prohibited anyone from or any public from helping slave catchers. Um, who were coming into the Midwest, mostly from Kentucky and places like that. In one case in Wisconsin, <clears throat> an abolitionist was arrested for interfering with the capture of an escaped slave. Wisconsin courts uh, quickly freed the this abolitionist, and the Wisconsin Supreme Court went so, as, so far as to declare the Fugitive Slave Act, the national law, unconstitutional. And then the Southern... Southerners on the federal Supreme Court said you can't do that, and Wisconsin said yes, we can. <laughs> so this was this was the level of uh, opposition or resistance, I would say. Yeah, well, the, you you begin the, the chapter four with this great powerful anecdote of slave catchers from Kentucky arriving in Detroit, and what you can see is is that slave catchers created local political problems. So Detroit becomes divided against itself. I mean, I'm talking about whites versus whites. There are going to be whites who are against the slave catchers and whites who say we should comply with the law. And then there are like then then there are like votes. The mayor demanding that you know blacks who can't prove their free status leave the city, and other people saying not. And then a committee forming to study the incident and warning of threats to her, and on and on and on. Slave catchers create problems in local politics for people who'd rather not be bothered by such things. Yeah. You know, that's right. And uh, but still the the abolitionists and the anti-slavery activists, you know, they fought they didn't bow to the pressure. Yeah, and I mean and you can see the way that people are created by the they are created by slave catchers arriving in their community. People are radicalized by the fact yeah. of them showing up. Yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, and, but I should say, just to give this a little more Midwest flavor, I mean, this what really brings this home is the creation of this new party in the mid 18 which I, it's stunning looking back how quickly that party takes off, uh, is successful and starts electing states, including the president in 1860, which triggers the Civil War. I mean, all this happened in the enclaves in the Midwest. This is where it all comes from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, and also with to also with with blacks, it's also interesting, it's, and, and it should not be surprising how quickly blacks coming from the South or from the East uh, quickly adopt the norms of Midwestern life, bourgeois. 
Protestant norms. So you chronicle the creation of the black Detroit middle class. And it looks pretty much in every respect. It has the same institutions, the same uplift, the same reading culture, the same speaking culture, all the rest that the whites do. Yeah. And these uh, amazing uh, newspapers, black newspapers, take off throughout the region and uh, black attorneys and people, African-Americans elected the state legislators, et cetera. There's, there's a lot of this uh, history buried back there that we're not aware of. But uh, this sort of light Victorian culture of uplift and this Christian culture of, uh, of striving and helping your neighbors, et cetera, that define the Midwest in general, very much embraced by the African-Americans who come to live in the Midwest. Um, not, not many of them were embracing radicalism. Um, they wanted to be part of, you know, the stable structure for the most part. And back to the Civil War, um, which we're start, and back to regional identity, uh, in many ways, to what extent does the Civil War create the Midwest? I can certainly see the argument the Civil War creates Iowa. <laughs> I mean, it, wars create societies as well as destroy them. Um, Ukraine is being created as a new nation right now as we speak uh, because of its experience in a war. Um, and in many ways, the, the Civil War is at least the end point of the first phase of the development of the Midwest. I think it has a great deal to do with um, deepening regional identity in the Midwest. Um, these Midwestern generals like Grant and Sherman, uh, they organized Midwestern units and regiments, and they marched south uh, into Kentucky and down the Mississippi River Valley. And, you know, it in many ways is kind of a regional war. And there's been some research um, about what these soldiers noticed when they were marching through the south. They would write home and they would say, you can't believe this. You can't believe how dominated by slaves, you poverty, you can't believe the level of illiteracy. I mean, they began to see how how much better their region gave them a sense of identity in their well, life. Here's John Campbell of the 5th Iowa writing his diary. I believe that duty to my country and my God bid me assist in crushing this wicked rebellion against our government, which rebellious men have instigated to secure the extension of that blighting clause, curse, slavery, over our fair land. Yeah, and uh, this did not end with the war. Uh, they went home, these Union soldiers, and they formed Grand Army of Republic Lodges, and they would have rallies every year about their great victories in the war, and they would wave the bloody shirt. Oh, yeah. uh, General Grant would go up to Des Moines and have big rallies about... Um, their victories in the war. And of course, lots of Southerners after the war kept complaining about this and stuff, but. Well, I mean, and this, this is, I mean, t talking about radically, political radicalizing, you write uh, the GOP, the Iowa GOP and the party convention votes 513 to 242 in favor of black male suffrage. That's in 1865. This relates mm -hmm. to a recent conversation on the, on the subject of black suffrage in 1865 on the podcast. Um, the same year, 700 veterans of the Iowa Black Civil War Unit, the 60th U.S. Infantry Colored Regiment, met in Davenport and petitioned for suffrage and go on and on. Um, 
these Grand Army of the Republic veterans are now radical Republicans, but mm-hmm. on the basis of their experience and also their feeling that they owe something to other, to black men who, like them, had fought and bled and died. Yeah, and, you know, just to follow up on that, I mean, those were Republican Party convention votes you cited. You know, those are sort of elites, yeah. but there a popular vote in Iowa in 1868 to determine whether or not there should be suffrage for African-Americans, and it passed. 57%. An all-white male electorate voted to extend suffrage. I mean, that's a pretty interesting fact that I don't think a lot of people realize. Eight. Let's, let's finish up with talking about mild reform, sort of early progressivism, mild reform, in your last chapter. Um, one of the things I was absolutely entranced to 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 realize uh, there was a Grange about a mile from where I'm sitting right now in rural Southern New Jersey. Uh, I knew about the Grange. My, my wife or my father-in-law tell stories of sitting under the table while they play pinochle at the Grange. So I thought of the Grange as sort of, you know, a sort of farmer's club, a rural club. Little did I realize the Grange is, has to be the most overlooked social reform movement a powerhouse that I've ever heard of. The Grange or the patron of, Patrons of Husbandry, you, you write, organized in different levels and units and subunits. In 1874, this is like what? What have they founded? 1867. By 1873, 1874, they had reached 750,000 members in six years. It's staggering. Uh, so we should talk about the Grange as an example of of this sort of movements for mild reform because it certainly is one. Well, yeah, and I think uh, we should link it to the dense civic culture of the Midwest. Just, yeah. I mean, this place where every town had a dozen clubs, they had a do- dozen civic organizations. I mean, this was a culture of joining. Now, the Grange uh, was obviously catering to the interests of farmers in particular. Uh, It's going out in Minnesota and is, you know, very much organized along the lines of some of these other service clubs that we would be more familiar with, Kiwanis and the Lions, etc. And it began to dabble in certain political issues and began to well, is there something we should be doing to deal with these railroads a little bit? Are these railroads treating farmers fairly? And what are wire trusts? Can we deal with that? But as I indicate from your question, I don't think they were seeking radical, crazy change. I mean, these weren't proto-socialists or anything. Uh, They were just trying to use the open political system that was around them to enact uh, small uh, reforms that they thought would make lives better. And this grows into, you know, subsequent organizations like the Farmers Alliance, et cetera. Is there, were they proto-populist? Is there a, like a red thread linking them to William Jennings Bryan? I mean, I've, given what we've said about Protestantism and ethnicities, it's interesting that their chief lecture in 1873 was none other than Ignatius Donnelly, which has to be the worst German name I've ever heard, uh, uh, and doesn't he doesn't sound like a Lutheran boy? That's I'm, I'm just gonna observe that. 
so, so somehow the Catholics have become involved, obviously. Uh, they're founded by an Oliver Kelly, suspicious. And then Ignatius Donnelly is a lecturer. Somehow the, the Catholics are now part of this Protestant bourgeoisie has, has expanded to include other people. Um, so, but are they, are they proto-populists? Well, first of all, just on this question of Donnelly, Kelly, I mean, it just speaks to the openness of this. I mean, there were people that dominated culture, but it was open to lots of people participating. And so, no, strong lines weren't drawn to keep people out. Um, and Donnelly, by the way, was a fascinating character. He was a Civil War uh, Union guy, strong, and he was involved in all kinds of uh, reform efforts, including yeah. women's suffrage and prohibition. Yeah, he, he is. He is a fat. I just he keeps popping up in like a little, you know, in in the book here and there and everywhere. Yeah, but you know, it was a culture that uh, you know it wasn't a reactionary culture where all reform rebuffed. It was a open, progressive culture willing to make adjustments, adjustments if it was needed. And, you know, it, in the big, the big curveball that came into this culture in the late 19th century was the railroads, because this was like this big economic power that kind of distorted the political process, which didn't really exist before, which, uh, you know, it was kind of a culture of small institutions and people participating in democracy, small d, uh, via local means. But when you have a big transcontinental railroad, that kind of system. And so they created ways to deal with that, like uh, setting up rate commissions, et cetera. I mean, and, and yet, as we've seen that, that stat I gave of between 1850 and 1860, the railroads had also reshaped the economic life. And they had made, they had made the Midwest an economic possibility in ways, in terms of its population, in terms of its wealth, in terms of the, in ways that were impossible. At the same time, you know, this is a, a live issue throughout the Midwest. Will the railroad come through my town or the town five miles away? That's life and death. Yeah. No, I, people want, they're very supportive of railroads. They love the invention. They love being able to hop on a railroad and go visit their friends 50 miles away. I mean, it made life better generally. But if you're a farmer um, and your access depends on the railroad, over which you have very little bargaining power, uh, you begin to think of ways to counter that. And that begins with the Grange. It moves into the Farmers Alliance. It continues with populism somewhat. But the most radical parts of populism, really, that's not that's not very common in the Midwest. That's more of a Southern and Plains phenomena. The the populace in the Midwest remain pretty tame. So let's finish off with the rights for women. Uh, the Grange is interestingly enough is co-ed. Uh, women are equal members from the beginning of the Grange, which it has to be some sort of interesting moment in American social and cultural history. I wonder if the Grange is like one of the first. Certainly, God knows it's the first mass movement where that's the, that, that has to be the case. So, uh, and as you said, Ignatius Donnelly is a supporter of, of rights for women. Uh, how does that begin and how does it follow through in the, in the Midwest as part of this mild, persistent experimentation? Well, uh, early 
one, uh, women become involved in the political process uh, first as abolition in abolitionist groups. They're extremely helpful in those groups. Um, they also become uh, the the real leaders of the temperance movement in the Midwest, which is heavily uh, anchored in the Midwest. And then some of these temperance leaders, they get uh, a lot of their training in civic life from all the clubs in the Midwest. And pretty soon they start to push for a little bit more sway or a little bit more influence on the political process. And, and they ask to vote in school board elections and local elections and elections for mayor. And they start to win all these victories. And pretty soon you have, um, you know, women mayors in small towns in Kansas, etc. Um, also connected to this is the co-religion practices of Midwestern colleges. A lot of the people who become leaders of temperance movement and other civic reform societies uh, went to college at Midwestern colleges, and that's where they learned a lot of their leadership skills. And a lot, and a lot of um, what we consider very right-wing fundamentalist uh, colleges, uh, Hillsdale, uh, Wheaton, uh, Eureka, I think, these are all co-ed from the beginning, as, as I re recall. Yeah, I, yes, and I remember... It's not just Oberlin. I was just reading about, or I remember reading about Hillsdale, and uh, then of Hillsdale says, well, we can't really have classes because my entire student body marched off to fight in the Union Army, so there's no one here. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's all, all of a piece. Yeah, yeah, very much. Um, let's, uh, let's finish up. Uh, if you don't mind, we, we might get a little, uh, we, we begging the listeners indulgence. We might get a little personal. Um, I'm thinking of two of Shreve McCannon's injunctions that I read at the beginning. Why do they live there? Why do they live at all? Uh, very Faulknerian, very good. Uh, gets to the heart of things. Um, this is a book. It goes 18, this is 1800 to 1900. We might hope that you will eventually, in nine years, write 1900 to 2000. Uh, but it's uh, as I read this, I can't help but think of my mom's stories of growing up in Villisca, Iowa, um, not the county seat of Page County, Iowa. That was uh, Clorinda, uh, but Villisca and her memories and and I mean the facts are amazing. In 1954, there were three car dealerships, two women's dress shops two hardware stores, two pharmacies. Uh, I don't know what all else. That was just around the town square, town a, a little town of 3,000. Uh, she just got word from a high school classmate of hers that they're bulldozing like a block of houses and buildings which are just so dilapidated, they're like a threat. Uh, and uh, Velisca is not what it was in 1954. Um, Velisca is one of those places uh, which in which the social capital, which was, and the civil society, which was developed um, with such grinding effort that you describe in the book, it seems to have run out the bottom like sand. Um, this is a town uh, which, one of the only towns uh, which built its own armory for Company I, I think, of the Iowa National Guard. Um, if you read um, uh, the an Army at Dawn, um, uh, it's Velisca's, uh, the base of the entire company was cap captured at the Battle of Kasserine Pass. Um, it, 
uh, is a, a, a town with immense social capital. All of that has now run out the bottom or evaporated, whatever metaphor you care. And it's not the only place like that. Meanwhile, you're sitting there in the Riviera of South Dakota uh, in Sioux Falls, and everyone's moving to South Dakota. I mean, they might question their, their good judgment after this week. Uh, this this winter this winter might make them think about Florida and you know the Gulf Coast, but um, why do we live there? Why do they live there? Why do they live at all? Uh, your your uh, mourning your father um, as we as we record this, uh, you wrote a beautiful obituary for him, and he is like the archetypal Midwest joiner. Um, and I read your obituary and thought. Why does anyone join anything at all? I'm sorry. I mean, I, I'm very, it's, it is, Dece it's a cold December, colder where you are than, it's cold enough here in South Jersey, but it, it has me in a December mood. Now it's, um, it's very concerning and there's no, there's no question about these high levels of social capital and civic energy. Um, of course, Robert Putnam's our famous um, chronicler of social capital and he put out his book, uh, Bowling Alone. If you look in that book, places in Iowa and Minnesota, they had the per capita social capital in the whole country. And these are the kind of places that are being described in this book, or at least the origins of these places. And, uh, you know, you mentioned what's happening to your mother's town in Iowa. I was, of course, in my town of Madison, South Dakota this week, preparations for my father's funeral and we went out to dinner last night and we're talking about when there used to be six grocery grocery stores in my little town and now there's one and everyone kind of complains that they have too much monopoly power so some of them saw people drive to Sioux Falls to get their groceries stuff um, but I don't know I don't think we can get back to the place we want to be unless we understand this history and understand this this proud history and this great tradition and heritage that's back there. I mean, I think it can can sort of inspire us and we need to think about these people that have gone before us. Thank you for reading the obituary of my father. I just kept thinking as I was sitting in the hospital room about all the people he touched and all the every nurse who come in, they they knew him from somewhere or they were related to his cousin and um you know and he always kind of looked out for people and even people that were having problems downtrodden, he especially looked out for and you know he never missed an american legion bingo night or whatever and we just need people like that we need people who are not looking at their phones all the time um making tech and just venting their rage on Twitter. It does, it's not a workable society. You know, just think about this, Al. Think about these places that are described in this book and how they were built and how there was all this effort put into character formation and creating good citizens and people that participate in the process and make the republic stronger. And then think about what we do now. I mean, we are letting our kids drown in social media that only makes them angry and alienated and disconnected from the world. Uh, before, we had a culture that made people strong citizens. And now we have 
this electronic ocean we're living in, swimming in, that only makes us worse citizens, worse people, more divided. I mean, it's insane what we've done. I mean, we have to reverse this quick. And, you know, I I should point this out to you, too, since this is historically thinking. Uh, I did an editorial in the new West Review that's for, you can read it for free for a couple more weeks, but it's related to this problem. It's about the collapse of history departments in the Midwest. And I just kept hearing these stories about, oh, well, we lost a couple of professors and we're not replacing them. And I thought, I, we more in a direct fashion. So I compiled a lot of this data and it's not going to shock your listeners to hear this, but the, the bottom is falling out of the history profession. There's just not enough jobs. And I think there's public support for our kids learning more history. But um, whatever is happening, you know, we can have a big debate about the forces and the causes and all of that. But we need to get this on the agenda and get it fixed before the profession has dwindled so far down that it's almost impossible to rebuild. Well, it's it's. Um... I, I tend to think of it as, 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 you know, despite our own self-interest in that question, I think of it as, as a very small percentage of a larger problem. Um, it, it, we don't like to think of it this way, but history departments closing is, is, some, is somehow related to grocery stores also closing. Uh, it's, it's related to Grange Halls closing. It's related to people not showing up for bingo night. Um, when social capital, uh, decreases, it decreases everywhere, not just in certain places. And uh, in, in many ways that the loss of any institution is related to loss, has to be related, has to be somehow related to the loss of other institutions. Um, and when institutions fail, they don't fail one by one, they fail everywhere and gradually, like the weather, not like measles. Yeah, I uh, went out to dinner with my cousins last night and they used to go to this little church called Union Presbyterian Church out on the prairie, no trees around, just sitting by itself. And they were saying how uh, their membership had dwindled down to 11 members. And uh, so they had a church meeting and they decided that um, they had a full tank of fuel oil, which is important when it's minus eight, like the Dakotas now. And they said, once the fuel oil tank runs dry, we vote to close the church. And I thought that is sort of a metaphor for the great instant of our lives um, in places like the Midwest. Well, we, we will have another conversation about that editorial and hopefully some people who will have uh, some other people who responded to you and some other people who are like that cartoon that gets passed around Twitter of the of the dog uh, sitting in the midst of the fire drinking coffee saying everything is fine. Um, I'm sure there'll be some people saying that as well. John Locke, uh, his book is The Good Country, A History of the American Midwest, 1800 to 1900. John, thanks so much for once again being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you, Al. And uh, take care of of you and yours and have a Merry Christmas and happy holidays. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone. 
and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present.